0: Welcome to this week's edition of SBC this week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC this week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe.
1: Hey, Jonathan, how are you this week?
0: When in course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve <laughs> the political band. A, a
1: few more days. A few more days.: I'm
0: beating you to the punch.
1: You're just getting ready? Yes. Yeah.: Oh, there's some great lines in there. Great, great lines in that document. Okay, I wish we all, I wish we all wrote documents like that.
0: Yeah, and for those uh, trying to figure this out at home, that's the opening of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, A, uh, if you caught last week's episode, you you understand the significance of that too. Amy, she reads it to her family every year on the Fourth of July, and that is yes. uh, that's this week. So uh, coming up, so it holiday is. weekend.
1: So yes, holiday weekend. So Monday uh, we will get together with friends and. Uh, I'm sure fireworks involved, but we will be reading the Declaration of Independence. Yep,
0: that is a Whitfield family tradition, I know. Before we get going this week, I want to remind you of a new feature at sbcthisweek.com called Data Datapoint. Uh, it's a statistical uh, look at it's something going on in the SBC. Data point will debut July 5th, so sign up today. You'll get the first Data Point on July 5th. You've got a couple of days over the holiday weekend to sign up for that. Amy, I know... I send you a lot of data all the time, and now I get to share yes. that. Hopefully, some of the data.
1: Yes, send it to everyone. Yeah,
0: everybody gets the data now. So uh, we look at a lot of different things, and uh, we wanted to share that with you. We've got—I think Amy's got another uh, new feature that we're going to be working on, launching this fall as well. Uh, some some looks at some different people in some maybe some profiles of, of some Southern yes. Baptists that you may not know. So a couple of new email features coming. Uh, from SBC This Week. Go over to sbcthisweek.com. Make sure you sign up for that, and uh, we'll see you on the data point every week. We're going to jump into the news, uh, everything that's going around the SBC after uh, a quick mention of our sponsor. This week's podcast is sponsored by Southeastern Seminary's new GO Certificates. GO Certificates are specifically designed to equip leaders in the church with valuable training for all people at any level of experience, this program provides sound teaching with practical application in an efficient format that can begin at any time and will fit even the busiest schedule. Southeastern wants to prepare all church members to grow in their knowledge of Scripture and to live out the Great Commission wherever they are. Start today and go with Southeastern. For more information, visit sebts.edu slash All one word there on GO certificates. So uh great continuing education program there from Southeastern. And uh, I know all the guys and gals that are involved in that over at Southeastern put in a lot of work. I, I know you've been launching that. I saw a big display at SBC about that, Amy.
1: Yeah, we had, uh, it was part of our booth and then also part of the um, tables outside the pastor's conference. Uh, so great opportunity to kind of introduce people to that.
0: All right, so let's jump into this. A couple of news nuggets coming out of Lifeway Research. First of all, uh, just a quick note here. Scott McConnell has been tapped to lead LifeWay Research following the exit of Ed Stetzer to Wheaton College. Uh, that went into effect. I guess that goes into effect now in, in July, right? So Yeah. yeah. So congratulations so, yeah. to Scott McConnell.
1: Yeah. I, this really, to people who know Scott and people who have been around LifeWay Research, this is not a surprise at all. And uh, Scott's very deserving of this position, has done a fantastic job, in his role there as a researcher for LifeWay even before and then when LifeWay Research was formed um, 10 years ago. But honestly, the impeccable work and the methodology of every research project that comes out uh, can really just be trusted 100%, and that's because of Scott McConnell and his work.
0: Yeah, and and some would even say that Scott was leading LifeWay Research before, but (laughs) we will leave that alone. So, all right. But speaking of Life Research, some big research out this week about the unchurched and how they will talk about faith and what, they, uh, what they've said about it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So many times when we're talking about evangelism, we're afraid to speak to our unchurched neighbors. We're afraid to open the conversation uh, because we think they don't want to talk about it. And this research really tells us something different. Um, it actually says that Americans who don't go to church are happy to talk about religion and often think about uh, the meaning of life. And these numbers are are really incredible. Uh, like one was among uh, this was this is an online survey of 2,000 unchurched Americans, um, and it was in partnership with the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. But one question uh, that that's at the beginning of this release is they were asked, if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind them talking about it. 79% agreed with that. Um, now, it still said that uh, they're, they're still not necessarily drawn to organized religion. They don't necessarily think church is for them a lot of times, but they're not as hostile to it as we're afraid. And when I really think about this, and I think about my sort of personal experience, most of the time, I mean, a lot of my unchurched friends, next-door neighbors, um, in uh, some of the other places that I've lived, people when we were in Virginia that we w- would encounter, they really were happy for us to talk about those things. Um, so I, I, this this really matches up.
0: Yeah, and I think also something in here that was not surprising uh, was uh, people wondering if they were to die today, would do they know for sure that they would go to heaven? And nearly half of the people never even think about that. Heaven is is not really on the minds of uh, unchurched Americans.
1: Yes. And the interesting thing about that is that typically is a is a question that we will start with. Yeah, that's and this a, tells a popular us
0: evangelism line.
1: Right, right. And so this tells us something. It tells us that they don't necessarily, people aren't necessarily always thinking about that. They're not wondering about it on a regular basis. Um, But what this survey tells us is that they are open to talk about it, especially if it is important to us. And so it it just, the the survey as a whole has some very interesting findings things that, that certainly surprised me. They might surprise some of you. Uh, it's definitely worth just looking just looking into. Uh, but the end of the release, uh, Scott McConnell is quoted that he just says, you know, people who want to share their faith should just talk about what, sh- what their relationship with Jesus is like in day-to-day life. He says, if you wait for unchurched people to bring up the topic of faith, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah,
0: because they're not thinking uh, about it.
1: But Right, right, which is what we can see. Um, But there's more openness than we think.
0: All right. Well, uh, another great research study out of Lifeway Research. Uh, There's more to that study. It's a big, big study about the unchurched in America. So uh, that is a uh, must-see and a must-read, and you can find all the links for that research and all the Lifeway Research that we mentioned over at SPCThisWeek.com in the show notes. All right, moving on up to Kentucky. A couple of news bits out of the bluegrass state. Uh, First of all, I think we may have mentioned this earlier on the podcast uh, last month, uh, but Matt Hall been named the new dean at Boyce College. He succeeds Dan Dewitt, uh, who moved on to Cedarville. Matt is a a staple at Southern Seminary, and now is the Boyce uh, dean uh, at the college there in. Louisville, that release came out this week, as well as a release uh, from the governor's office, actually the First Lady's office of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, Glenna Bevin, uh, and a new website to aid foster care and adoption in Kentucky. I know that's something that's uh, very important to Southern Baptists in Kentucky and will be a valuable resource to not only uh, Kentuckians, but especially the 8,100 children who are in the Kentucky foster care system.
1: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It, it really is. And um, I'm going to just look into this more. We have a lot of friends in Kentucky. I actually just um, heard about someone uh, I know tonight that uh, is not a, not in Kentucky, but but someone I know that is um, starting the foster process. And so this is becoming something I know several people that are doing it. Uh, it's becoming something that many uh, people in our churches are opening their hearts, opening their homes too, and so this is a great opportunity uh, just to make that easier. So this is a fantastic new website. Maybe we'll see other ones pop up along the way uh, in other places as well. Um, and just a comment about uh, Boyce College. That That's really great news. Matt Hall, you said he's a staple. Um, he's just done some tremendous things at Southern Seminary uh, for the last several years in a number of different positions. Um, but he is an incredibly well-respected uh, leader among the six seminaries, and so this is this is a great thing for Boyce College.
0: All right, moving back to Tennessee, some news uh, kind of close to home uh, for you, and yeah. you, uh, we'll kind of delve into that in just a second. But Pat Summit, the winningest coach in NCAA history, uh, passed away earlier this week following a five-year battle with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Summit was a Southern Baptist. That's why we're bringing up on this show, uh, member at Faith Promise Church, uh, Southern Baptist congregation over in the Knoxville, Tennessee area.
1: Yeah, and I actually did not know she was Southern Baptist.
0: Yeah, I did not either until it it came out in in the stories.
1: Yeah, um, I have loved seeing all the stories about her the last few days. Um, I've loved seeing how it has really taken national news, um, because you know, growing up in Tennessee, I saw things about her all the time. Um, My dad uh, being involved in Tennessee sports so much, we were just uh, around all of that. And she was so, so highly respected. I mean, back into the 90s, so where, you know, everyone across the country has really gotten to see uh, all that she did. It was in the 90s when that was really just, just kicking off. And So she's just an incredible, incredible individual, and she was from the area where I I grew up. Yeah, grew up
0: on a tobacco farm in Cheatham County.
1: That's correct.
0: Sounds a lot like Amy Carter Whitfield.
1: Yes, and I was was right over the county line into Robertson County, uh, but just right there on a tobacco farm. Um, that was my grandfather's. So, and we had some family connections, although I never met her, but very distant relation that I remembered my grandmother talking about when we were in the um, when when I was younger. So, it was just something that, as a Tennessean, I always just had such tremendous respect for her. And the thing that I just remembered uh, from all time was just man that that look, the look that she could give. I mean, it would scare me from the television set. And so all these stories, you know, they're showing these um, amazing interviews, but I would love the montages of her on the sidelines. Um, but what I loved is she gives those hard looks that would just startle you and you'd think, man, I would never want anybody to look at me that way. But her players loved her. Um, they just loved her so much. They uh, really... Respected her tremendously, and I think it's been great to see a picture, such a picture of leadership, um, and just such a strong and gifted woman.
0: Yes, it was uh, good to see all the tributes of her. She is uh, one of the classiest ladies uh, that has ever graced the sidelines of a women's basketball or any basketball court. So uh, it was it was sad to hear of the news earlier this week uh, about that. Uh, but our prayers are with the Summit and the Head family. Yes. All right, moving over to West Virginia. Unfortunately, the Send Relief trucks uh got a little bit of work this week. Uh some flash flooding in West Virginia uh led to mudslides and and just a lot of peril in the Mountaineer State and Send Relief was mobilized to West Virginia. Uh, to help out in their time of need.
1: Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. And of course, you hate to hear about these things, but we've just been hearing about these trucks, and then now we're seeing them in action uh, right away.
0: Yeah, and loss of 24 lives, 100 homes, and um, Nam deployed a semi-truck filled with bottled water, disinfectant, and uh, all kinds of things, flood buckets, uh, different things to help in that flood relief. The West Virginia Disaster Relief, uh, group and the uh, Southern Baptist of Virginia as well were deployed out there as, as, as well as many others. So uh, a lot of Southern Baptists on the ground in West Virginia helping them in their time of need. Unfortunately, there is a need for sin relief, but once again, good to see Southern Baptists on the ground right away uh, helping others in their time of need. All right, that'll do it for the news this week, a light news week, a uh, holiday week, maybe helping that out coming up this week. Uh, But at the same time, we have a great interview this week with Mark Clifton. Mark is the director of replanting initiatives for the North American Mission Board. He's based out in Kansas City. Had time to sit down with him earlier this week and hear about everything that's going on with NAM and the replanting efforts that they're doing, as well as his new book, Reclaiming Glory. Joining us this week on SBC This Week is Mark Clifton. He is the Senior Director of Replanting and Revitalization at the North American Mission Board. Mark, you're based up in Kansas City. Uh, thanks for joining us today,
2: man. I appreciate it. Hey, man. I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: So let's talk replanting. It's it's kind of a, a new term, I think, to a lot of Southern Baptists. We've talked a lot about revitalization, talked about planting over the past few years, especially with the new NAM focus on with the Sin Cities but replanting. Break that out for us.
2: Yeah, I've been a church planter all of my adult life for 30 years, and really in the past, what we did on church planting, we would just wait for dying churches to die, <laughs> and we'd leave them alone and maybe plant something across the street from them. Um, but in recent years, that's we really began to change our thought on that. And, and in my own life, the reason it really changed for me, because in, in my previous experience, it, it really is easier to plant something new in a school across the street from a church that's about to die than to try to go in and work with that dying church. But the thing that changed it for me was just the realization that, that God's glory is at stake in that community. And if, if that church dies, uh, that reflects on God's glory and the power of the gospel to that community. And that that's worth battling for. And so that was a, a game changer for me a few years ago. And and I really determined that as God would allow me to spend the last uh, half of my life Uh, I I wanted to see if we could take those churches that are at the point of closure and rather than just letting them die out there in isolation on their own is there a way we could be more proactive could we come to them with some real options of how they could we call it replant. it it, it's it's when a church is so desperate that simple uh... there's no such thing as simple revitalization but but, but revitalization is not going to be enough it's it's almost as though you have to shut the whole thing reboot the whole thing and and start all over again but can we do that with some of the remaining members? Do we have to necessarily kick them to the curb and take away their building and say, you guys got to go? Or is there a way we can, we can at the very end of, of their life when they're just about ready to – the church looks like it doesn't have much future left. Is there a way we can come in with resources and intentionality and, and, and people who are equipped and trained? And can we see that thing come back to life in that location? And if we can – Wow, what's that say about the power and the glory of God in a neighborhood? Maybe everything else in that neighborhood is is changing and transitioning and maybe even to some degree degrading. But to have a church that's been there for all those years come roaring back to life and be relevant in its community again is an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel and one that we need to have. So it's worth the effort to do. So, yes, we are looking at revitalization, uh, you know. Most people would suggest, and most studies say that you know, seventy percent of churches are plateaued and decline, and they need some sort of revitalization. Maybe ten or fifteen percent are are healthy and growing. But then, where we focus, the North American Mission Board, our lane we're running in, would be that ten percent of churches that, if everything stays the same, they're going to be out of business in five years. If if they're giving and attendance and expenditures, if, if the track they're on continues. They've got about five years worth of, of existence. That would be about five thousand churches. Yeah, it's about five thousand churches. Yeah, because we but we we realize from the annual church profile, which is the only thing we have, but from that we realize the closure of eight hundred to thousand churches a year. So yeah, every five so about five thousand churches are within five years of closure, and actually that number is probably going to increase. So uh, we have to we have to be intentional about replanting these churches, and so that's what we're trying to do.
0: All right, now, how does that fit into the the larger send city strategy?
2: Well, a number of these church buildings are in send cities. And, you uh, know, again, I, I was a church planter basically in, the believe it or not, the late 70s. Um, and, and in the 80s, we actually could plant churches before the Internet came along. Uh, that, that was actually happening, and even before Exponential and even before Ed Stetzer. So we were able to do all that, uh, even before all of that. But, you know, back in, in those days— uh, most of us as church planters didn't want old church buildings. We felt like they would detract, uh, that they were maybe off-putting to, uh, to, at that time, baby boomers that we were trying to reach back in the 80s. All of that has changed, and now uh, communities and church planters realize the necessity of what we kind of call sacred structures in a neighborhood, how important that is, and reclaiming those uh, for God's glory. And so, in cities, we are seeing, you know, I think Johnny Hunt has said we need to plant churches where we have churches. I mean, we, we have churches in our cities that are just not effectively uh, reaching their communities. They're not, they're not a part of a community. They're not um, in, in any way incarnational in their community uh, and so rather than to go across the street and start something brand new, how can we replant those churches where they are? So we have churches where we where we need churches and we redeem the building we reclaim the building we redeem the remaining members who are there in the sense that we redeem their purpose and their their identity as a church and for the glory of God that church again raises the banner of God's glory and the gospel in that neighborhood seems pretty worthwhile uh, to us to do that and uh, and frankly Jonathan we're, we're closing, Nine hundred churches a year. If if Southern Baptists plant twelve hundred churches a year, that's a three hundred net gain every year, which doesn't even keep up with population growth. And I don't have. What's our
0: target need to be?
2: Well, if 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 a denomination is not reproducing at three or four percent, it's 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 in some serious trouble. And we're not reproducing at three or four percent. We're not even reproducing with three hundred churches a year. We're not even at one percent. And so we're falling further behind all the time in church-to-population ratio. Even though we start 1,200 a year, if we close 900 a year, we gain 300 a year. And I think this year, if I remember right, I think the net was 294 Southern Baptist churches. So let that sink in for a minute. When you think of the 1,000-plus church planters who are raising money and going out and planting churches and all the sending churches, all the energy we put in church planting, and our denomination, rather than gaining 1,000 churches, we gain 294 because we're closing uh, Seven or 800 uh, or 900 and that's what we want to change yeah
0: well i guess the question is how do we go from 300 to what you know six percent you mentioned that's three thousand. Yeah. how do we how do we increase how do we go to that level
2: couple of ways one is we do have to reduce this death rate we just have to come in with churches and give them some options so that they just don't just don't end up dying and, so if we, and we
0: close fewer we don't have to plant as many obviously
2: that's one and then we've got to plant different kinds of churches i mean certainly the the platform church plants are, are important and we have to do those but we're going to have to be more we're going to, have to do some missional communities and those kinds of things we're going to, have to be more creative about how we plant churches if we're going to keep up and and at the end of the day If we're talking 3,000 churches a year as a denomination, then it's not going to be anything you can strategize for and control uh, and systematize. Because if you could strategize for it, control it, and systematize it, you can't do 3,000 a year. So we're going to have to have a movement of God. Where, uh, where he moves across this land and churches are just planted, as they are in other parts of the world right now. That's what we're praying for, for sure.
0: And we've seen the decline of the SPC and the ACP numbers, you know, the membership decline, the the attendance decline. That's been going on for the better part of a decade now. Uh, we've seen the baptism decline, you know, lowest rate since 1947 or whatever it is this year. Um, it, are we too late to the game in the, the church planning? I mean... Obviously, it would have been nice to be having this kind of emphasis 30 years ago. We would have been ahead of the curve some. But, it, you know, how long does the curve, how long would it take, you think? Were we looking at a generation, two generations, three generations?
2: Man, here's where I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, I'm 56 years old, but I started doing this at age 20. And so I've been doing this for 36 years, planting churches. And 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 I worked for the old Home Mission Board back in the 80s. Uh, when nobody much was talking about, it was called a church extension. It wasn't even called church planning. And what I've seen that is so encouraging is God has raised up an entire generation of young men who are passionate about the gospel. And check this out, passionate about the local church. I mean, there was a time, frankly, in the mid 80s when a lot of young guys were ready to check out on the local church altogether. And, and the, the guys I hang out with, the guys that connect with our, our team, the guys that want to replant dying churches, are young men in their 20s, who, who are some of the brightest and best, some of the highest capacity leaders I have ever worked with. And they are being drawn and compelled to to the local church and to replanting and revitalizing local churches and to planting local churches and biblical local churches. I mean, gospel-focused local churches. And I, I, I think God would not be calling so many young men to that task if he weren't prepared to do something so i'm frankly very encouraged more encouraged than i've been in a decade about the future
0: okay so when we talk replanting you mentioned in a book and we'll get to the book here in just a second but in the mention in the book you mentioned replanting pathways what do those look like explain the different pathways to us and just what that may look like in a local church setting for our listeners
2: yeah when a church um and you know, i don't like to use the word comes to the end of its life cycle uh, I say that because it's in my vocabulary, and I've said it for 30 years. I'm yeah. trying to quit saying it. So yeah, if my I, boss wrote a
0: whole book on that, though, so go
2: feel free to say that. <laughs> well, if I – okay. And the reason I say it is I, I don't really – I bought a, I bought a little betta fish for my grandson. And so when I bought him, I looked up on Google, you know, I tried to find out all I could about betta fish. And, hey, guess what? Betta fish have a life cycle, all right? I mean, they're going to live a certain length of time and no longer. I don't see that in a church. I, I think as as long as a church is um, willing to submit to the lead sh- lordship of Christ and have a passion for the gospel and desire to reach its community, now the community changes, but the reason the churches have a life cycle is they don't adapt to those changes. And, and so it really isn't just sort of a natural lack of a life cycle, it, or lack of a, excuse me, it's not just a natural life cycle, it's really a lack of being the church we're called to be. And I I think that's not a subtle difference. So now that I've said all that, I've completely forgot your question. Pathways. Thank you. Thank you. Here are the pathways. All right. So when when a church comes to the point that they are no longer sustainable because of decisions they've made in the past and they're not connected to their community and and their closure is is coming like a freight train toward them, we have discovered uh, four general pathways where those churches can continue to live. Uh, and and can thrive and can make a difference in their community. And, you know, frankly, three of them are pretty simple, and they work about every time they're tried. One of them is they just simply hand over the building to a Southern Baptist partner, and that could be an association or a state convention because associations and state conventions clearly have a passion to reach those neighborhoods and and plant churches there. And we just want to create a narrative where that's the normal thing to do. I mean, when churches come and, and they're ready to close, uh, man, they need to know that they're part of a Southern Baptist Convention and a local association and a state convention that is passionate about the gospel and passionate about reaching people for Christ. And there's nothing they could do better than just turn that property over. And, you know, a lot of times churches will try to do other things with it or sell it to, on contract to deed for a, to a school or something. And, and it can get kind of, kind of, kind of messy. And so we're, we're really just trying to encourage that as the, one of the pathways. When you're ready to quit and you have nothing left, Man, go to your Southern Baptist partner. That, that's what we want to do. That's, that's great commission stuff, and the kingdom will be blessed, and your church's history will continue through that. The second one is uh, let it be a home for a church plant and uh, work with your local association, your state convention. There are church planters all over your city who are looking for places to meet. It just seems unimaginable that we can close that many churches in cities when we have church planters paying a tremendous amount of money to rent places. Now that just doesn't make any sense in the in any way, especially in a kingdom minded way. So as a church is ready to close its doors, man, they need to reach out and discover what are what are the church planters out there? Who are they? And could any of them use this building? And then and just give them the building. I realize a lot of times churches want to sell it, but if the church is at the end of their life, just, just hand those keys over and let that ministry continue and let that church plant use their funds not to try to buy a building or purchase land, but to do ministry because believers in the kingdom have already purchased that building. It's already been given to the kingdom. So uh, we want to work with our church planting guys and, and help them find good homes in some of these buildings. And along with that, a, a sort of secondary to that is campuses. We have a lot of larger churches who are, who are, uh, have a campus approach, and some of these older churches that are ready to close, those can be great opportunities for them. So to give it, number one, to give it to a, a partner of a Southern Baptist partner, or number two, to give it to a church plant or a campus. The third one is to share your building with a church plant. Now, I, I, our merge, there, there, there are two of those, actually, we'll go four. Third one is to share your building with a church plant. Uh, I would have thought that really wouldn't work very well, but my experience has been it's worked exceedingly well. You, you have an older church that's not ready to quit, not ready to give up. Perhaps a pastor there is not ready to retire, but they understand that they're not reaching the neighborhood. Man, they love people. They love Jesus. They love the Bible, but for whatever reason, they cannot connect to that community. It has changed so much. They just can't break that missional code. However, there's a church plant nearby that could come in and share the building, and the church plant could sort of take the lead in reaching the neighborhood and, and making the, the gospel uh, incarnate in among those people. And and a really cool thing that can happen is the church plant can then minister to the older church and the older members and respect them and love them and care for them. And the older church can really serve as the prayer base, prayer warriors, prayer support for the spearheaded ministry of the newer church. And we want to show to the community that this these are two churches who are serving side by side, loving each other, caring for each other. And it's quite possible at some point down the road they may merge, but at this point they're just sharing buildings. And then the the, the fourth one is an actual merger, where generally that's where you have an older church with no pastor, a newer church that needs a pastor. And rather than just giving the building to the newer church, actually the older church merges into the life of the new church. And, And you would think that wouldn't work very well. It's worked exceedingly well in many locations. And I've had a lot of personal experience in helping churches work through that. And our team at the North American Mission Board can help you understand the process involved in those two churches merging. So those are four pathways. You give it to a, a Southern Baptist entity, you give it to a church plant or a campus, uh, you share your building with the church plant, or you merge with a church plant. But then the last one is the one that seems to be people choosing the most, and that is you replant it from within. And uh, that's the, the book you talk about. The majority of the book spends time talking about how you replant a church from within. And uh, that's a very long process. It's a very long on-ramp but it is a very meaningful thing, and we're seeing God do some amazing things in taking churches that were at the point of closure and seeing them replanted with the remaining members. And they, they once again find new pathways to life and engage their community.
0: Yeah, and the book you mentioned is Reclaiming Glory, a new book from B&H. Uh, just give us a quick spiel on the book uh, as we close.
2: It's a real easy read.
0: <laughs> it actually is. I I read it last week. It's a very good read, though, uh, it's and, it, and it's a good behind the curtain look at what Nam is doing uh, with replanting.
2: Yeah, in in the book, we'll give you the six sort of the six characteristics needed to replant a dying church. We'll give the eight characteristics of what it takes for a replanter. What what kind of gift sets he needs to have to replant a dying church, and uh, we'll give you some models. We actually have some models in that book. Stories and listen when we talk about replanting dying churches, we're talking about taking churches that, that are at the point of closure and seeing them grow to a healthy normative size. And we really believe in the normative size church. That's a church of under 200, uh, a neighborhood church. That's what we've lost in North America. And so when we're replanting these dying churches, we are passionate about replanting churches that will grow to a, a normative size. We're, we're not expecting them to, to burst beyond 500. We, 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 we really see the need to have churches of 100, 150 in each and every neighborhood. And the, the way we define success in replanting isn't by the numbers to show up. Uh, we define success by, in replanting is the church making disciples who make disciples and is the community noticeably better because the church is there. And when that happens, we really do really like we're, we're on the pathway to replanting that church.
0: All right, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Tell the, the listeners where they can connect more with you and what nam has got going on with this online.
2: Yeah, just go to replant at nam.net. And uh, you can you can email us there. Also, there's a good website called churchreplanters.com. It has a lot of our information on it as well. But either one of those would work.
0: All right, Mark. Thank you again for joining us, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thank you for that, Jonathan. That's a, a great interview from Mark Clifton. I'm glad he it took the time to to be able to come and talk to us.
0: Yes, I appreciate Mark taking out the time. And we will have other interviews coming for you in the month of july august and beyond uh, before we get to this week in sbc history i want to once again thank our sponsor southeastern seminary's new Go certificates for any church members who want to grow in their knowledge of scripture and live out the great commission the Go certificates are for you start today and go with southeastern for more information again you can visit sebts.edu slash certificates as one word Go certificates and uh, that's going to lead us to my favorite part of the week this week in sbc history amy blow our minds
1: all right, we're going to go to 1972. And I have to tell you, I've really just uh, kind of recently stumbled on this. And so I need to probably do a little bit more research or perhaps one of our listeners will know uh, more about this. Uh, but there's a fascinating story. Um, I don't know if this was actually happening this week in SBC history, but the story was was out in Baptist Press about a Baptist pastor... In the Ozarks of Arkansas, who invented an anti-pollution device that was like fifty percent more effective than any autos uh, than anything that auto manufacturers have put put on their models. But he, basically, the story says, "What's the secret?" He's not going to tell. <laughs> but he called it a scat pack.
0: Huh. So it was an emission control device.
1: Yes. Oh. So it it was something they it it, it was they ran tests from um, at the University of Arkansas, their Graduate Institute of Technology, and another a firm in Little Rock, and it showed a forty eight percent reduction in carbon monoxide, a forty two percent reduction in hydrocarbons, seven point seven percent reduction in nitric oxides, and forty one percent reduction in particular particulates and they were kind of surprised uh that a baptist preacher it his he was from the ozarks there were less than 300 people in his town and said that it was this device was even better than what anyone in detroit had come up with um, and he said the pollution problem bugged me for several years since I studied it in college, and I've just been trying to figure it out, basically. So he got the idea from um, a World War II technique uh, that was designed for American fighter planes, and I think he just kind of worked on it where he was. And so it's just, it's just kind of interesting. It just jumped out at me. You got this. You got all these automobile companies in Detroit, and they're working on all these things, but uh, a Southern Baptist pastor in the Ozarks of Arkansas uh, developed this secret device. Now, I, I want to do some more research to see whatever came of the Scat Pack.
0: All right. Um, well, maybe you'll have to report I, back I on have... us. Maybe Lizette Beard can help us out with that, since that's kind of yeah, her, since from her territory, from
1: yeah, he did have a. Um, a degree in agriculture and a minor in chemistry, but then he went to uh, Central Baptist Seminary in Kansas City, was pastor for eight years at Springdale, Arkansas. At before, First, First Baptist? Maybe, I don't know.
0: A forerunner to Ronnie Floyd, possibly.
1: Possibly. he It says at Springdale, Arkansas. So I'm throwing out I'm sure there's more there than one say, church
0: in Springdale as well, but...
1: Maybe, but was there in... Nineteen seventy-two. I don't know. I, I guess there was, but I'm not sure. So I'm throwing this out there because this story kind of broke this week in SBC history. But I think we need to know more. Um, so I'll do a little digging, but we need to find out was uh, was this pastor who um, is named Roe Matthews, First Baptist Church um, in Lowell, Arkansas. Okay. Uh, Was he at First Baptist Springdale? And then uh, what happened to his anti-pollution device? All right. Well, I'll
0: tell you what. Any listener that could write in and let us know what's going on with that, I've got an extra copy of the new CD from the Gettys that I'll send to him.
1: That would be fantastic. But these are Southern Baptist pastors changing the world in all different ways. How about that? That's pretty incredible. incredible. Yes. Absolutely amazing.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, very cool. And it all started. This week.
1: This week in SBC history.
0: All right. Well, that's going to bring us to our resource of the week. Amy, your resource of the week is no, no mine relation. Is,
1: <laughs> mine is a new book called uh, Hillbilly Elegy.
0: By the um, same guy?
1: <laughs> no. it totally coincidental. We talk about me growing up on a tobacco farm, about someone in the Ozarks developing an in, uh, a pollution device, and then it's Hillbilly Elegy. All of that. It's coincidental. Um, this is a book that just came out this week. It's by uh, J.D. Vance. It is a memoir of um, kind of his life in, I think, some Ohio, uh, a town in the Rust Belt, but then also in his family's uh, town in uh, the Appalachia re- region of Kentucky. And it's basically a it, – it, it's basically looking at the culture and crisis of uh, white working class Americans. So it's hitting at some um, some things that uh, Robert uh, Putman has been dealing with in some of his books from a research standpoint. Um, there, the a recent one that he had called "Our Kids: The American Dream in Crisis." Bowling Alone. Uh, he's a researcher. So he's written so, and then J.D. Vance. uh, So Robert Putnam has written a couple of books with some research on these issues, Uh, but J.D. Vance is really just telling the story of his family. I stumbled on this because he wrote an uh, a column that was being shared around about uh, the sort of the decline of faith in uh some of these communities and i several people were sharing that we'll we'll give a link to that and that led me to his book and i saw several things on twitter about the book because it's coming out this week at the same time as the column hannah anderson who's a um a writer that i've follow and another podcaster i listened to and uh, she was just raving about it because i think she she got a review copy uh, bob smetana was talking about how he was going to get a copy so i said i got to get one and i just started it first chapter uh, fantastic very eye-opening all right and that uh, reminded me of a lot of things all
0: right well that's hillbilly elegy by jd vance my resource of the week is reclaiming glory by mark clifton uh, no surprise we had mark on the show this week Great book. I had a chance to read it earlier this week and last week, and I just kind of flew through it. It's a great book, a very, very practical book for churches interested in uh, replanting, having themselves replanted, or for pastors, uh, church leaders interested in going to a church and helping with a replant. So uh, a great resource. It's, It's your primer for church replanting, and a great resource, again, from Mark Clifton, and we appreciate him again for coming on the show this week. All right, Amy, that's going to do it for this week's episode. We've got a big holiday week. I know you're headed off to Canada.
1: No, I'm headed off next week. So we'll get to record one more before I head to Canada. Okay. But just for about 10 days, not leaving the country yet.
0: All right. So you're headed to Canada at the end of next week. I'm headed to Chicago. We're traveling all over the place. Um, So it's going to be a fun. Fourth, I uh, pray that everyone has a safe and productive Fourth of July. Keep all your fingers. Uh, Don't Jason Pierre, Paul things uh, with the fireworks this year, folks. And uh, we will see you next
1: week. See you next week.